Welcome to the Global Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast. Please like and subscribe. Also visit us on social media, um, on Facebook, that's Global Seventh-day Adventist Church, or um, we also have Instagram, Goebbels Youth. Please check us out there. Also um, on our website, GoebbelsSDAChurch.org. Um, please uh, join and join us Sabbath mornings at uh, 9.30 a.m. for Sabbath school and 10 a.m. for church. I was looking forward to a special treat today with Elder Edwards being up here and presenting one of his famous sermons, and yet he's been having some struggles with his health, and he said for the first time in his life, he had to ask, please give me a little time before I preach. And so I said, okay, this time. <laughs> So I, I was looking forward to that. But when he called me Tuesday, I said, all right. And then I had a big lot of prayer going up for myself as well so that I might have something to share with you today. Let's have a word of prayer before we continue. Lord, we have this opportunity to worship you and to just recall what you have done in the past as we're thinking about our futures. We know it can help us. So we pray that your spirit, which guided then, will guide us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a little bit ago, you were reading the very last page of the Bible that Jesus had in his day. I'm not exactly sure that the Bible was put together the way yours is, uh, because each separate book was probably rolled up and was there was probably a roll of Malachi and you could get it and open it up and read it. But at any rate, Malachi um, ends in a very powerful way. It's a very powerful book about turning to God and reforming. And there's some good news and there's some bad news here in the book of Malachi. Now, we were reading the last three verses. I would like to look at all of chapter four of Malachi there in the end of the Bible. Verse 1 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, is that the good news or the bad news? I think that's pretty evident. Doesn't sound that great. Sounds like bad news for those who do wickedly. Certainly the world had seen some destruction at this point. It had been destroyed by water until only eight people survived. There had been a great destruction by fire in the place where at one time there were two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah so that nothing was left. And it looked like, according to this verse, there was more destruction on the way. But there was also some reason for hope. Verse 2 goes on to say, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Well, that sounds better. 
except for those of you who are not wanting to grow up and get fat like stall-fed calves. No, it just says there is healing and there is life ahead for those who fear His name. And certainly, that's good news when we think about healing and when we think about the life that Jesus is offering us. Healing in His wings. And certainly, we would like to grow up and be more like Jesus, wouldn't we all? And that's what we're looking forward to. Well, then it goes back to the bad news. Talking about those who fear His name, you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. And so there was more hope also in the last three verses that we read just a little bit ago as our Scripture. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. With the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The day of the Lord is obviously the day when Jesus comes in all of his glory. And in that day, it says in verse 5, it's the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It sounds like it's great or dreadful, whichever side you're on, doesn't it? If you're the wicked or if you're on the righteous side, it's going to be great if you're following the Son of Righteousness. Not so great if you didn't choose Him because it will be a day of destruction. Well, we see here that the people needed to make a choice as to whether the day of the Lord would be great or dreadful. And it was really important, according to the last verse, to get your heart right. Not only with God, but with one another. After all, if we're going to heaven, I suppose we're going to have to get along up there, aren't we? And so it is that he says, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse, I am going to prepare my people for the return of Jesus by sending Elijah who would turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So much happens in our home units, doesn't it? So much happens with our families. And we have a great burden for our families, every one of us. And we know that there's probably some healing that needs to happen somewhere along the line in every family. That's why it's so good we can look to the Son of Righteousness with healing in His wings and ask for healing even now before He comes. So why was Elijah mentioned here in the closing verses of the Bible? We're talking about a story that took place about 3,000 years ago. It's in 1 Kings 16. If you'd like to turn back a few pages to the history of the Old Testament, 1 Kings 16, some of the um, most amazing things that happened in Old Testament times included Elijah and the way God was involved in his life. 1 Kings 16.29 talks about a new king coming to reign in Israel. 
And usually people get excited. Oh, we're going to have a new king. This is going to be great. Well, it says in verse 29 that in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that was the other side of the, the country, while Judah had a king Asa, Ahab became the king of Israel. Son of Omri became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. It's a pretty long reign. And what kind of a king was he? Verse 30 says, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's not good. In fact, how evil was it? More than all who were before him. They'd had some rotten kings. They got one who was even worse. And not to mention that he was going to reign for 22 years. How much damage could he do? Well, we'll see. It says in verse 31, as we go on, it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabal, Nebat, that he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. He went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now, you may not know too much about Baal, but does that sound like he was a worshiper of the God of heaven? I don't think so. He married a lady whose father was priest of Baal in the land of the Sidonians. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wonderful image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Some really bad history in the Old Testament, isn't there? But history is always for a purpose. And even the bad stories are for a purpose. If only we could learn from history, we might not have to repeat the mistakes that were made. Well, God was not pleased, you can be sure. And Elijah, one of God's prophets who lived at the time of Ahab, was certainly not pleased either. In fact, he was very upset. Now, he lived in a quiet place, kind of off the beaten track, on the other side of Jordan from the Mediterranean. So he was not in the most favored spot of Israel, but he was in a quiet place in the mountains where he could come out from his little home and see the beautiful valley where he lived every morning. But he also, when he came out to see and to worship the God of heaven, see God's handiwork, he also saw smoke ascending from all kinds of altars all over the place that were dedicated to Baal. Where the people were worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. And of course, early morning when the sun was coming up was a great time for worshiping the sun. And that's where they would be. And that's what Elijah could see from his home. And it made him sick to realize that these were God's people who had been brought out of Egypt so they could worship Him. And 
nearly every one of them now is worshiping idols and worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars and everything else under the heaven except the one who made them all, the true God of heaven. So we go to chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now the Lord must have told him exactly what this was about and said, you need to tell Ahab. And it took a lot of faith to share a message like that. Now we all got a little nervous a few weeks ago when it hadn't rained for a few weeks and everything was getting brown. The lawns were getting brown and the corn was curling and the beans were not looking that great and all the things that, that keep things alive around here. But they were told now that it wasn't going to rain until they returned to God. Those of us who were suffering a few weeks ago probably can't imagine what it's like for the folks west of here who've been in drought conditions for 20 years now and whose water sources are drying up. We should not take for granted the water at our sinks, should we? What a blessing. So he shared the word from God. And then God gave him a personal message. Verse 3, get away from here. Turn eastward, hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. It will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows from the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. It's a wonderful camping experience, I suppose. Rather primitive, but after all, he was just trying to survive, and he was doing as the Lord directed him. And wonderfully, the Lord provided for his needs. He had food and he had water. What more do you need? Well, we have other comforts of home in mind, but he had his basics. But then it says in verse 7, it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So it was that God directed him to go to a place where there were not any God-fearing people that he was aware of, to Zarephath. He didn't know where he was going or exactly what he was doing, but that's where he was told to go. When he got there, he saw this little lady and her, her child out there by the gates of the city picking up some sticks that had blown off the trees. She was getting ready to bake some bread. And so he asked her for a drink of water. You know the story very well. You've read it. Asked for a drink of water. He said, oh, by the way, if you could get me a little piece of bread while you're at it. And she said, well, I can get you a drink, but actually we're running out of food. We're down to our last bit of flour, our last bit of oil, and then we'll have to die, I guess. So he said, well, just, just bring me a little bit and, and, and 
he didn't say it, but he knew that the Lord would bless her. And she apparently knew the same as well. So according to the story, she went and did as he asked. She was promised that the bin of flour would not be used up, verse 14, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the earth. She did what she was asked. And wonderfully and amazingly, you see what happened in verse 16. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. And so God provided for his needs and for the needs of the one who was willing to obey the Lord and put their faith in God as well. And they all had food to eat until the day that the rain came. Well, that was miraculous. The story continues with the son of this widow lady getting deathly sick and in fact dying. And Elijah presenting the needs to the Lord and praying to the Lord. Verse 21, O Lord my God, I pray let this child's soul come back to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper room into the house, gave him to his mother. Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Well, that was pretty impressive to be sure. In chapter 18, it says, it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah again. It was many days. This was in the third year of no rain. And he was told to go present himself to Ahab with the message, I will send rain on the earth. Well, then it was that Elijah was given an opportunity again to present the power of God they couldn't find him anywhere. They looked and looked for him. And finally, it came that Ahab and Elijah did meet. Verse 17, Ahab saw Elijah. Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Are you the one that brought all this trouble upon us? He answered and said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so it happened that there was a great meeting of God's people on the top of Mount Carmel. It was quite a showdown to be sure. Now we're looking at the story that took place. And we're looking again further in chapter 18. All the people were gathered together. Verse 21, Elijah had a question for all the people. How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. And the people answered him, not a word. 
You remember the story how he invited the prophets of Baal to do their thing. They had an offering. They had an altar. He said, we're going to do this this way. Nobody can bring fire to the altar. The Lord will have to send the fire. But he gave them their opportunity beginning in the morning to pray to Baal, to accept the offering, to burn it there on the altar. And they prayed and they prayed till they were blue in the face. Then they prayed until they were red all over because of cutting themselves and bleeding and trying to get the attention of the gods. He said, maybe you need to shout a little louder. And he suggested that you know they needed to get Baal and his other gods awake because he was probably taking a midday nap. So he had a little fun with them and said, you, you just need to shout a little louder. We'll give you a little more time. So the day wore on and of course nothing happened. But as the mid-afternoon came and it was normally the time for the evening sacrifice in God's house, which had not been happening for a long time, that Elijah saw that an altar was built, 12 stones, that the offering was put on along with the wood. And then, if you can imagine how scarce water was after three years of no rain, he required them to bring water and pour over everything. This must have come from the Mediterranean. It must have been quite a job for the people to bring it from the sea down there up to the top of Mount Carmel and bring it and pour it over this offering, the wood, the stones. And in fact, they made a trench around it so that the water was standing. And three times they poured this water over it. And then he prayed. I don't want to miss the prayer. Let's see if we can find it here. Okay. It says that verse 35, chapter 18, the water ran all around the altar. He also filled the trench with water came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And then it says the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. That would have gotten my attention. How about you? Woof. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They were convinced. It was a mighty day proving the power of God. So Elijah was a reformer calling people to turn their lives to God. That was his message. But from there, the command was given to destroy the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Asherah. 
So Elijah didn't do it personally. I don't know how he single-handedly could have killed 850 people there that day. But somebody at the direction of God saw to it that those people all perished. Really kind of gruesome, but that's what happened. And then it was that the rain was about to come. God instructed Ahab to get going because his chariot was going to get stuck in the mud if he didn't hurry up and get out of there. And it's amazing what the hand of the Lord asked Elijah to do. The last verse there of chapter 18. The hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. He girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel, which was, I suppose, like a marathon. I don't know. This was quite a run. Then he found out that there was a price on his head. Ahab's wife was going to kill Elijah because of the destruction of all her prophets of Baal. And so it says he ran for his life, 19 verse 3. When he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life. I probably would have too. And he went to Beersheba, which was a long ways away. And then he went even further into the wilderness. And in verse 4 of chapter 19, he went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came and sat down under a broom tree. He prayed that he might die. He said, it is enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Can you imagine just a short time after that mountaintop experience? Here's the prophet of God saying, Oh, just let me die. I have had it. Enough already. I don't know if you've ever been to that point, but Elijah was. And so it says, as he lay and slept under the broom tree, an angel touched him, woke him up because breakfast was ready. Verse 6, he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals, a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and he lay down again. He was so exhausted, he slept like a baby again. In verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. And so he did. He had another breakfast prepared by an angel. And from that point, he ran for 40 days now this is not a marathon man this is a this is something else this is super marathon man running for 40 days on the strength of that food and the sleep that he had just gotten can't imagine so he came to Horeb and he went into a cave and I don't know if he was now praying that he could die but he must have felt like he should die after running for 40 days without food, without eating, without sleeping. And verse 9 says there, He went into a cave. He spent the night in that place. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, you know what he was doing. He was running for his life. He was trying to survive the death warrant that was out for him. And so in verse 10, he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. 
For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. He was in the pits, wasn't he? He said, I am all alone. There is nobody else who stands for you. And now they're trying to kill me. So God didn't give up on him. And he spoke to him. And you can read it. And I'll leave it for you to read what happened. But wonderfully, verse 18, after he repeated to the Lord that he was the only one who was standing for truth, God said in verse 18 to him, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So I don't know if you've ever felt all alone and like you were standing for God and there wasn't much else going on for God's cause around you. You weren't alone, even though you might have felt like it. Well, we need to move on to Elijah's story. Actually, it continues in in 2 Kings where he is now with his... um, his um, disciple who has decided to follow him, Elisha, who wants to learn everything he can from this man of God. And in Second Kings, we find out more of the story. Second Kings 2, in verse 9, he and Elisha we're at the Jordan River. It says, it, so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elijah said to Elisha, "Ask what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you." Elijah said, "Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me." So he said, "You've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. If not, it shall not be so." And it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Wow. That wasn't just the end of Elijah. That was the beginning of a whole new chapter of his life. He was taken up into heaven. Well, what I want to do is share something else with you now. That's not the end of the story. Yes, Malachi refers to him and said that God would send Elijah again. And after Malachi penned his words, 400 years went by and nothing happened and there were no prophets and there was no word from God and there was no Messiah. But very near the place at the Jordan River where Elijah was taken up into heaven, someone appeared with the message of reform very much like Elijah's. Many people thought he was Elijah. And when Jesus came along and asked this one to baptize him, Jesus was pointed out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that was John the Baptist then. And Jesus, 30 years old, when John baptized him there at the Jordan River, declaring Him to be the Messiah. And you'd be amazed how quickly the next three years went by. Jesus 
was hunted down by church authorities. They were so upset with him that all they could think about was killing him. And when he knew that his time was about up, his father did something wonderful to encourage him. Now we're in Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2. This is called the Transfiguration. Again, on a mountain, not Mount Carmel this time, but on a mountainside. Matthew 17, 1. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and... Who's that? Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Well, I don't know what Elijah had been doing for 400 years, but we know what he's doing now. He's been commissioned to come encourage Jesus near the end of his life, along with Moses. What in the world do you suppose they were talking about? Luke 9 tells the same story, and it tells us what they were talking about. Luke 9.31. Verse 30. Makes sense to read 30 and 31. Behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What were they talking about? His death. His cross that was just imminent. Was just around the corner. Why Moses and Elijah sent to Jesus at this time? Well, Moses could remind Jesus, who already knew about it, of how he got so close to the kingdom of the land of promise just didn't quite make it because of his frailty. And yet God was good to him in spite of his weakness. And he could say, Jesus, you're almost there and you can do this. You can make it where I failed. I know you can do it. Just keep trusting our Father and you'll be okay. And what could Elijah tell Jesus at this point? He said, you know, Jesus, you're going to feel like you're all alone and that you're doing this all by yourself and there's nobody else out there supporting you, but, but there is someone who is supporting you. And I once felt like I was all alone, but, but there were many others and there was always our Father who was looking over us, taking care of us. And Elijah could tell Jesus that their father would do the same for him and see him through. And so today, Elijah's message is to keep our eyes open because pretty soon, a little cloud is going to appear in the east. And soon it's going to fill the whole sky with the brilliance of all the angels of heaven and the bright face of the Son of Righteousness. It's time to get on God's side like it was in Elijah's day. Time for people to make their decision. To not try to ride the fence, but to make a firm decision for God. To come out of her, my people, according to Revelation 18, 
that you be not partaker of the sins of Babylon, but that you're ready for God and His appearance. It's a time to have our faith in God, a time to turn our hearts towards heaven. And so it's no wonder that here in the end, almost the very end of the New Testament, Elijah is mentioned again in James 5. I'd like to share that with you before before I wrap it up here. James 5 and verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. There is real power in prayer. Elijah proved it. These are days that we need the power of prayer in our lives as well. Brethren, he said, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's what Elijah was about, and he still is. In closing, I'm going to refer to 1 Corinthians 15. Like Moses, some of us may sleep a while and then have the privilege of seeing Jesus face to face. Like Elijah, some of us may be caught up in the clouds to be with the Lord in the air, never even tasting death. Verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Today, I believe that God is is calling us the same as Elijah did to be sure that we're on God's side. It's the winning side. Why would we choose otherwise? He's telling us that we do have a choice, that the coming of Christ is either going to be great or it's going to be dreadful. I'd just soon go with great, wouldn't you? And it's a matter of choosing. Are we really 
wanting Jesus to come? Are we really wanting him to be in control of our lives? If today is an opportunity for you to say, Lord, I want to be sure that I'm on your side, then the same as in Elijah's day, choose. Let it be the Lord. And certainly if there's someone here today who says, well, yes, I do, and there are things that I want to do to get ready for Jesus to return, then he knows your heart, he knows what it is, and he will help you do that. And if you need help from any of us here at church, we've got a bunch of elders who are anxious to help you in your walk with the Lord. Certainly, he's able to do it. The choice is ours.